0: William Shakespeare famously said all the world's a stage but imagine you were on stage and the lights went out behind every stage production there's an army of people and equipment making sure the show goes well unseen they toil away ensuring the lights are on the props are in place and during the breaks the snacks are delivered this thought occurred to me the other day walking down a crowded mall having interviewed Robert Rapier Robert is engineering director for AXIS Technologies in the US, an expert in oil energy and its alternatives. Around me mill the shoppers, quite oblivious to the hidden stagehand oil. Not just the cars, fuel and lubricants that brought them here, but less obvious things like the plastic bags and other products, the paints and the vinyl floors. Their breakfast foods grown using fertiliser derived from oil. Even their cosmetics. A vast proportion of our modern material wealth rests on oil, and it seems impossible to imagine a world without it. And yet, while oil is not going to disappear any time soon, that is what we must start thinking about, because the world's supply of oil is not infinite, and our ability to produce it cannot grow indefinitely. I'm Rod Taylor, and I'm interviewing Robert Rapier for the Fuzzy Logic Science Show on Radio Two 2XX in Canberra. And this interview is available from Fuzzy Logic on 2 com. Robert writes for The Oil Drum at www.theoildrum.com and you can find his blog at i-r-squared.blogspot.com.
1: Uh I spent the first 7 years of my career working in the chemical industry making butanol. Um, I spent 2 years overseas in Germany on that with that job. I came back to the U.S., went to work for the oil industry. I joined ConocoPhillips, and I joined them working on gas-to-liquids, and that's uh, taking natural gas, converting it into syn gas, and then uh, subsequently converting it into diesel with the fischer tropsch reaction. And I did it- that for a couple of years. I uh, moved into a ConocoPhillips refinery in Montana, and I worked there for three years, and then I went over to the North Sea, to Aberdeen, Scotland, and I was a process engineering team leader. I had a group of engineers, and we executed projects in the North Sea there. I worked there for a year, and I got a call from one of the guys that I used to work with uh, early in my career. He'd just been named CEO of a company called Axis Technologies, and he asked me if I'd uh, like to come work for him. And at the time I said no because I was on an expatriate assignment that would be very difficult to, uh, to get myself out of. Uh, but the more he talked, the more interesting the job sounded. And what the work is, um, they've invented a process that can take a fast-growing wood, like a soft wood like pine, and turn it into something that's superior to tropical hardwoods in performance. And the, the technology is, is very old. It's called wood acetylation, but nobody has ever been able to make a commercial go of it. Uh, we've got some patented technology where we've actually made a, ma- we're making a, a commercial product now in the Netherlands. Um, what interests me most about this is, uh, you know, it's got the potential for carbon sequestration, and I'll give you an example of, of uh, how that is. The wood is so strong and so durable, it doesn't absorb water, so it doesn't shrink and swell. Insects can't digest it very easily. So the Dutch government has taken this wood and is actually making a pair of uh, heavy traffic bridges out of it. So instead of using steel, and of course it takes a lot of energy to make steel, so we're taking this wood that takes some energy to make it, but less so than steel, but then instead of having steel in that bridge for 50 or 100 years, you've got this wood there. So you've sequestered carbon away. So to the extent that the wood can be used as a steel or aluminum application in, say, window frames or a, uh, a, a substitute for PVC, you know, there, there are applications there where you can actually sequester carbon away and at the same time use a product that takes a lot less energy to produce. And so I'm the engineering director for that company. Uh, we're, the, the U.S. base is here in Dallas, which is where I'm at now. And uh, the, our, first, our first factory is in the Netherlands, in Arnhem. The second one is being built in uh, China, Nanjing. And the third one is going to go in the Middle East. And the only thing that's slowing us down right now is I can't hire engineers fast enough.
0: Wow. So that's amazing. Returning to contracting things like bridges out of timber, that's, that's really amazing. We have a very, uh, some very historical bridges made out of timber here in Australia. But I don't think we've been using timber for a long time. Is it uh, which particular kind of pine is it? Pinus radiata, or yes,
1: what? yes. That's there. There's multiple species that we can make this wood out of, uh, but but radiata pine is the most common species that we use. Um, you know, I've had inquiries about eucalyptus, and uh, you know, we've got some some data on that. Uh, we've we got data on beech. Uh, there there are a lot of species that are easy to acetylate, and some that are not so easy to acetylate. And I, just to point out, what acetylation is, an acetyl molecule is, is vinegar, essentially. It's acetic acid. It's an, it's mm-hmm. an acetyl mm-hmm. And wood naturally has these already. What we're doing is just bumping up the, the amount. A Wood may naturally contain about 2%, and we're knocking that up to about 20%. And we do that by knocking off the hydroxyl groups in the wood. Hydroxyl groups are, I like, think, of two-thirds of a water molecule, that, that causes wood to absorb water. The hydroxyl groups attract water, and that causes wood to shrink and swell. And by knocking those off and replacing them with acetyl groups, we eliminate the shrinkage and swellage, and uh, the wood is extremely durable. We've, we've seen some come out of 10 years in a, in a canal lining in the Netherlands, and it's still just solid as, solid as it was the day it went in.
0: So, so when you say you're looking for engineers, is that on the construction side or is that on the acetylation process or chemical engineers, what kind of engineers are you referring to there?
1: We've been hiring a lot of chemical engineers lately and uh, there's a there's a real uh, demand for chemical engineers in the U.S. and, and well, e- everywhere. When I was in the North Sea, the oil industry, you couldn't find chemical engineers. It was, it was just very, very difficult. Um, this is uh, one of the problems in the oil industry is a is a personnel issue where they actually can't get the people in to do the projects. Uh, we've had to delay projects simply because there's nobody to do them, and uh, there just aren't enough chemical engineers. And looking forward, um, I know in the oil industry we're very conscious of the fact that the average age of the oil industry is uh, is somewhere in the 50s, and these guys are going to be retiring soon. And we don't have people in the pipeline to replace them right now.
0: So, what's the process? Do you get a, a log and you cut it and then put in a vat or something? How do you get the? How do you yeah, actually physically uh, do the acetylation?
1: Basically, we, we take wood that's been uh, th- that's already been cut, and we put it in a reactor, and we use some some temperature, some pressure, not not extreme, um, and, and we have a process there where we react it for a certain amount of time and uh, the, the heat management aspect of this is very important because this is an exothermic reaction. It's very easy to burn the wood. Um, there's, there's a lot of little tricky things that uh, have kept this ever from being commercialized before. A lot of interest in it. Um, a, lot of, a lot of companies have, have tried to commercialize um, and it's, 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 it's just difficult.
0: Well, cost-wise, how does it compete with traditional materials like oil and aluminium and so on, other steels?
1: Well, that's the and that's the reason it's taken such a long time to commercialise, because it is costly to produce. Um, if you compare it to, like, an untreated radiata pine, it's uh, maybe three times the cost. So if you're comparing wood to wood, and you're trying to, you know, you, you go to your... You go to your lumber store and they've got uh, this wood next to a, a, a untreated radiata pine. You know, a lot of people will just go for the cheaper wood. But if you if you think about it in terms of uh, you know the the durability of it, the uh, the fact that since it won't shrink and swell, you can put a coat of paint on there and it will stay on there for years and years and years, where the untreated wood won't. Um, so that's cost wise. Now. I've been asked recently, how does it compare to the to the steel that would have been used in the bridge in the Netherlands? And that I'm not sure. I'm not sure how how that goes cost cost to cost. Um, that's that's something I need to find out because I I have been asked that question before. Um, you know, if I'm if we're going to start building bridges out of wood instead of steel, is it going to be cheaper? It, it will be obviously more environmentally friendly, but will it be cheaper? I'm I'm not sure.
0: Okay. Now your r squared energy blog is primarily about energy of course as the name implies has the process you or the work that you're doing with access having to do with energy directly
1: uh it it does i mean it obviously not as directly as uh when i work for an oil company uh where we're producing energy uh what it, what we do here we actually save energy uh you know again back to the you know steel replacement you're replacing it takes a lot of energy to make steel takes a lot of energy to make aluminum, or I guess you guys say aluminium, right? Yeah,
0: that's right. Yes, we do. So yes, with those things, you have to dig them up, you've got to refine them, you've got to mill them and, and all that sort of thing. So I can see... Yeah, be-
1: so it's basically an energy hmm. displacement. Um, you know, we can, we can save energy by doing what we do as opposed to making, making something like steel.
0: Yeah, and it's a renewable resource because... Uh, of course, with iron ore, it comes out of the ground. And I'll be going over to West Australia very soon, and this weekend. And you get three kilometre trains just carrying the ore out of the ground as fast as we can dig it out. So while there's probably about 200 years of ore there, I think it's going to be a, you know, only a matter of time before we actually do run out. So now I wanted to talk to you about energy and the future of energy. That was how I came across you on the internet. And uh, you mentioned that your history is with oil. So just a basic question, what is oil really? It might sound like an obvious question, but I suspect it's a bit more interesting than that.
1: Right. Uh, Basically, oil is made out of uh, small microorganisms, algae, uh, things like that that lived millions of years ago and uh, died and they, they sunk to the bottom of, say, shallow seas and they got buried anaerobically where oxygen couldn't get to them. And the the pressure and temperature of the Earth as these things sink uh, basically cook the cook the biomass into oil. And depending on what pressure and temperature the the uh, biomass sees, you may end up with something like shale. You may end up with coal. Um, you know, if it if it goes too far, you'll end up with natural gas. So uh, all of these things came from you know the same general uh, general sort of process. Um, I can say. Millions of years went into making this, and uh, this is what I try to impress upon people who, are, uh, who really think biofuels can swoop in here and, and, uh, and, and take us off of oil. You know, nature did all the heavy lifting on oil. Nature, uh, you know, the earth was the pressure cooker. It provided the heat. And we're trying to speed that up And on a, on a year-by-year basis. And, you know, we make a lot of corn ethanol in the U.S. We've got mandates to do that. But um, you know the the energy inputs that go into doing that are very high, and if people try to extrapolate that out to the amount of oil that we use, there's there's no way we could possibly displace you know more than a fraction of our oil usage with with any combination of biofuels.
0: Okay, you know I want to get onto biofuels a little bit later, but uh, I've got a few more questions about oil first. It's come to me fairly recently the dawning realization just how fundamental oil is to our civilization that it's really the basis for our energy but not just the obvious things like oiling our cars and providing for petrol and fuels and so on can you tell us a bit about what oil is actually used for
1: yeah i heard someone recently say it would almost be easier to come up with a list of things that uh, oil is not is not used for um there are so many things around. Just if you look around you, you know, the, the paint on the walls, the, the tires on your cars, the clothes that we wear, a lot of those are, are made out of oil based um, uh, fabrics, materials, fertilizer, roads, roofing, um, you know, I, tire uh, shoes, I, I said tire shoes, glue. I mean, there, there are so, so many things. Carpets, you know, I'm, I'm I'm looking at a carpet in my house right now. I'm just looking around. The computer that's in front of me, the plastics in the computer, the phone that I'm talking on, the plastics in the phone, cars, you know, major, many of the components in cars have an oil base. So, uh, yeah, I, I think we don't realize sometimes just how dependent we are on oil.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. In fact, the questions that I'm reading from at the moment are printed on a computer printer, and I suspect the uh inks are actually oil derived that 's
1: mm-hmm. probably that 's probably correct
0: and in fact, I recall reading a magazine that I used to enjoy years ago when the oil shock in the seventies occurred, and they said we 're sorry about the quality of the print, but the oil supplies have meant that we 're using lower quality oil now you have some experience in the oil refining process. Can you tell us a bit about that?
1: yes? I did work in an oil refinery for three years in Billings, Montana. Uh, it was a heavy oil refinery, and uh, which means, uh, just a word about heavy and light oil. Uh, light oil you can take that through a refinery with a minimal amount of processing. Um, it's got light oil means basically the oil is more like, say, gasoline, diesel. I guess pet- petrol, uh, diesel. It's uh, it's. It's lighter like that, rather than heavier oil, which is more like, say, roofing tar, um, asphalt in the road. You know, something that's very thick and and more. It's it's more intensive to process that into fuel.
0: And you can think of lightweight machine oil at one end, perhaps, or yes. or, or heavyweight grease at the other. Yeah. Uh, does that relate to the length of the carbon chain molecules?
1: That's correct. That's correct. The longer the chain uh, molecule, the heavier the oil. Um, the, it, it's not just about chain length though. You've got many ring components. Uh, some of the asphaltines are, are very complicated uh, cyclical structures and those things in an oil refinery, in a heavy oil refinery you can actually crack those into uh, much smaller molecules. Fuel oil refinery like I worked in, uh, you, you take all the, all the components in and you can take a light cut off that actually can be used for fuel. And the heavier cuts all go through some different you know, chemical processes, uh, uh, reforming, uh, coking, hydro-treating. Those are all different refinery processes that end up making those molecules into something that's more more usable in a, in a car.
0: And there's a cost difference too, isn't it? Now, I understand that the light oil is also called sweet crude. Right. Is that right? And the heavy is colloquially known as sour?
1: Well... The, the sweet and the sour refer to the sulfur in the oil. Most of the time, I say, you know, the, I, I say I worked in a heavy oil refinery, but it was a heavy sour oil refinery. Most of the time, the heavy oil will have more sulfur in it, so you hear heavy uh, sour often, and you're light sweet because the light oils tend to have less sulfur. You can have a light sour oil, you can have a heavy sweet oil. Uh, it's not as not as common, but uh, yeah, the sour is uh, sour. Sweet is the sulfur content, and sulfur has to be removed um, to very low levels. And you can do that uh, by hydro treating the oil and and converting the converting the sulfur and getting the sulfur out. And you can sell the sulfur then.
0: Ah, you can do what with it?
1: It's, uh, it's a it's a commodity chemical. I I don't know what all it's used for, but. Uh, I've been through refineries before that just had a mountain of sulfur out there. There's times when there's a, uh, you know, there's a there's too much sulfur out there, and I suspect that uh, going forward, as oil gets heavier and heav- and more and more sour, that we may see a glut of of sulfur.
0: Oh, we we'll have to find a way of storing it. So, what it must be an interesting place to work in an oil refinery? What's it like? Uh,
1: it's it, it's interesting sometimes. Sometimes it's not interesting. Um, you know the uh, they, they have emer- you have emergencies sometimes people get hurt it's uh, it can be a very dangerous place to work um, been through emergencies a number of times uh, where people got hurt um, it's, it's funny we were in the pathway of a of a landing strip for a, for an airport and sometimes when a big plane would come in I would think that uh, we had lifted a relief valve which makes a sound like a plane coming in and that's that's an emergency, and I, I, it took me a long time when I when I went up to the refinery before I got used to not jumping out of my chair when a, a plane would come in low because it, it made the same sound as a, as a relief valve lifting. Oh, um, did, did you, did you my, feel nervous being it.
0: in the on the on the flight path there?
1: Yeah, yeah, we were right on the flight path. Isn't on, it a bit uh, of a,
0: a suspect town planning decision to have a, an oil refinery under a flight path?
1: Yeah, yeah, you would think. You would think. Um, but my job, essentially, uh, I was in the economics and planning department. And we would look and we would see what the price of fuels were, and we'd see what prices of crude we could get. And we had these economic models that told us which, which crude oils we should be out buying. And one of my duties was also uh, gasoline blending, petrol blending, where we would take all these components that came out of all the different, uh, different units, different processes, and you'd blend them all together to make gasoline with a certain octane and with a certain vapour pressure for, for various markets.
0: Yeah, we tend to think of oil as being a homogeneous product, but I can imagine you looking at samples or lots for sale at the, at the assays, the sulphur content or whatever, and saying, I'll buy that, and you, what you buy it at a spot price, and then you work out how much it's going to cost you to get a saleable product out of it. Is that the sort of thing you're doing?
1: Well, right, but what's really important is the assay. You've got an assay, and what the assay tells you is uh, what various cuts you would get if you went and you you distilled this oil. And your heavy oil is going to give you a lot more of those very heavy cuts. Your lighter oil is going to give you the petrol, the diesel, as more predominant cuts. And so they're more expensive. They require less processing to get those cuts. So you're looking at the assay and you're feeding that into the economic models because you know you buy this oil, you're going to make so much uh, so much diesel, and then you're going to have so much heavy oil that's going to have to be uh, further processed.
0: Now, Robert, a term that we're hearing a lot is peak oil. What is peak oil, and do you think it's real?
1: Uh, well, peak oil is absolutely real. Uh, I, I don't think there's any question about that. There's some misunderstanding about what peak oil is, and I hear this a lot. Um, you know, some people, some people say, you know, we've used a trillion barrels of oil, and there's still a trillion, two trillion, three trillion. Pick your number, and they say, therefore, we're not at peak oil. Peak oil is about extraction rates. You know, it doesn't matter if the entire world is uh, full of oil, and which, which I don't believe it is, but uh, even if it was, it matters how fast you can get that oil out. And with demand growing, and you've seen that our production over the last three or four years has been very flat, it's led to a lot of people to believe that we're, peak oil is upon us right now. And so a peak oil would mean after you, after you pass the peak, every year after that, you're going to never produce more than you produced in that peak year. Now, we've seen this happen in, in the United States. The United States has peaked. Um, The UK has peaked. Mexico has peaked. All of these countries have seen their oil production rise to some level and then start to fall. In the US, we first saw it in Texas, uh, you know, major oil producer in Texas. And when people forecast an oil peak in Texas, uh, you know, people were incredulous that that could happen. And you know, we oil production now has fallen in Texas since the early 70s. There will be a time when this happens. you know, in the world as a whole, and it's potentially a, a very, uh, very serious situation. If you, if we go back to all the things that we depend on for oil, and uh, if 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 you look at what's happened over the past year with oil prices, I think that's just a prelude to what we're going to see when oil production peaks. Now, I don't believe we're at peak oil today, but I think we're pretty close. I think we're I, I tell people I think there's a 90% probability that we peak within five years, and I say that based on just knowing a little bit about what the various countries are, are producing, um, knowing uh, you know how how production has responded over the past you know three or four years to the price signals. It hasn't really come up like you would think it would, you know, when price has uh, gone up, you know, quadrupled and, and quintupled in the last, you know, seven, eight years. It's grown a little bit during that time, but from 2005, it's been relatively flat. I think we can grow production a little bit more, but uh, there's also a term that I I coined a couple of years ago, and I call it peak light. And I I coined this term because a lot of people were very focused on the actual peaking of oil, and I said the peaking may not even, it may not be the, uh, the seminal event. What's going to happen is, Demand is clearly growing faster than supply has been growing. And as that happens, the price is going to be forced up, and you will see people start to get priced out of the market. And this will start to look like peak oil. It'll start to, it, it, will, it will have the same symptoms as peak oil, where you know when, when oil peaks and it starts down the uh, production curve, you know, there, there's a lot of people that are going to want oil that can no longer get it, and they're going to be priced right out of the marketplace. This, this has been happening the last year as, uh, as oil ran up. Now, I do think that a lot of the run-up was speculation-based, and uh, I think it ran up more than it should have. But um, I, I do think there's an underlying, you know, since 2002, I, I felt like there's an underlying basis for oil prices going higher in the long term. If you ask me if oil prices will be higher in five years than they are now, I, there's been no time in the last five years that I've thought that question is that they'd be lower five years from now. I, I, I still see them going much higher.
0: Yeah, I imagine actually there's two ways of looking at peak oil. One is the ability of the world to produce oil, and the other one is the collision of oil supply with oil demand. And I suspect what you're talking about there is the, is the latter one. It's where... Peak oil light is when supply can't keep up with demand, even if there is still supply to be had. This is a podcast of the Fuzzy Logic Science Show from Radio Two Double X in Canberra, and you're listening to Robert Rapier being interviewed by Rod Taylor. Now, some people would say perhaps that the current oil deficit or the peaking is due to lack of investment and exploration and refining and so on. Is there any truth in that? Do you think?
1: Uh. I don't think uh, the refining piece is, um, is is such a big deal. I, I, I don't. There is in the world. I think there's excess refining capacity. There is there is some truth that there's not been as much investment maybe uh, in the in the oil extraction piece as uh, I, I know that when I worked in the oil industry. We did economics based on, say, you know, $30, $40 oil. That's what we thought oil was going to be. That's not what I thought oil was going to be, but that was the position of the company. And I know that's like the Exxon Mobiles and, and the Shells. They do projects based on a very conservative price for oil. Well, of course, if you're, if you're guessing oil is going to be $30, you're not going to invest nearly as much as if oil, you know oil is going to be $100. So had we invested with the knowledge we probably would be producing, you know, a few million barrels of oil more now, uh, which would also exacerbate how quickly we decline whenever actual production starts to decline.
0: Right. Well, a very topical issue in the U.S. right now is the availability of oil off the coast and in Alaska. How much oil do you think is in there?
1: I think the, um, the estimates from the Energy Information Administration, which I think they got those from the U.S. Geological Survey, is something like 18 billion barrels that they think that we could we could go get. That's not a it's not an insignificant amount, but when put in terms of what we actually use, it's uh, you know it's definitely not going to make the United States independent energy independent. Um, I, I ran the numbers a while back, and I think it could supply it could supply all of our energy usage if, if the numbers are correct on what's offshore, and we continue to produce what we're producing now. It could supply us for, you know, a few years, three, four years maybe.
0: What what do you think will happen as oil does decline? Uh,
1: I think I what's happened in the US, it's funny, I I've, i I predicted this that the uh as gasoline prices, petrol prices in the US, as they got more and more expensive, people would start to drop their objections, uh their environmental objections to drilling offshore, to drilling in, in Alaska, in the in the wildlife refuge and that's exactly what happened as as gasoline prices shot up you know people demanded that we drill we 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 must drill you know it's a uh, you know when that's one of the things about the US you know we're 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 conditioned to cheap gasoline and the politicians promise i mean that that's something that's like a a birthright it seems for, for Americans and it's one thing that really uh is detrimental to our energy policy is that uh, the people want cheap fuel, and the politicians will promise them cheap fuel. And when fuel is not cheap, the politicians will turn their attention to the oil companies and, and say, you know, we just need to tax these guys more because they're just ripping people off. And they don't understand that, uh, you know, it's, a, it's supply-demand issues. Companies don't set oil prices. That's set on the world market, and it's set by supply-demand. Now, OPEC certainly can impact oil prices to the extent they still have some spare capacity, but uh, they don't have nearly the spare capacity they did four or five years ago, which is why oil prices now are so volatile and, and so much higher than they were
0: yeah you, you mentioned politicians would you do you have an opinion on the extent to which oil affects us po- foreign policy
1: oh oh yes I mean of, of course I mean we I, do I believe we'd be in Iraq if Iraq didn't have oil? If it wasn't in the center of an oil-producing region? I, absolutely not. Um, you know there are lots of countries that have you know dictators that uh, you know are, are are suppressing their people, and we're not in there. You know trying to trying to liberate them. So sure, it's it impacts our foreign policy. Uh, it will probably do so more and more as we start to. Uh, I think as the U.S. starts to go down the uh, down the other side of the depletion curve, I, I don't know what we're going to end up doing. You know, the, the politicians are going to be desperate, and they're going to be pointing fingers, and, and people are going to be upset, and I, I don't know. I don't know what we're going to do. I, I suspect that we'll get to a point where there'll be more and more talk of nationalizing the oil industry. Um, you know, the. the I, I think they they really believe that oil companies have that kind of pricing power, and that if you just put put them in the hands of the government, that uh, you know, think we'll be back to happy times and, and cheap fuel. And uh, you know, I don't know of any case in the world where where an oil company's been nationalized or the oil industry's been nationalized and actually produced more oil. I, I, I'm not aware of any.
0: Yeah. Well, Robert, the reason I came across you on the internet was because. I'm personally very concerned about the future of energy, and as I mentioned earlier, my growing realization of just how central oil is to our civilization. Where where can we go? What's what are our options right now?
1: Well, I, I, people don't like to hear this, and I, I, I preach in the U.S. that uh, we have got to get used to doing with less. I mean, that's that's number one. Um, the, the U.S., you know, we. We're five percent of the world's population. We consume twenty-five percent of the world's oil. If we just consume the amount that uh, the average European consumes, you know, we cut our oil consumption here in half. They use half per capita what we use, and it would stretch oil supplies, you know, for quite a quite a bit further. We're there's there's nothing ready to step in and fill the void right now. Uh, biofuels, you know, the reason biofuels can can uh, compete with oil is because cheap oil underlies every aspect of, of the production of biofuels you know in the. US we make corn ethanol and the, the tractors are run by diesel and the fertilizer is made out of natural gas which came out of the out of fossil fuels the ethanol is distilled with natural gas the, the electricity is made from coal it's all you, fossil fuels completely underlying every aspect of this. And that's, that's the only reason biofuels are, are as competitive as they are. Um, what my, my long-term hope is that uh, solar can, can uh, fill, fill the gap, but it's not ready to fill the gap yet. Uh, we've just passed a, a bailout bill here in the United States trying to bail out the, uh, the, the financial industry. And they ended up passing it by putting a lot of uh, extras in there. And some of the extras are, are kind of ridiculous if you go through and look at but one of the things they did, they extended the tax credits uh, for people will get for installing solar panels until 2016. I think this is a very uh, going to be a very big boost for the solar industry in the U.S. Uh, solar is, is almost competitive now. I mean, it is competitive in certain places and certain applications now. But um, my long-term hope is that thin-film uh, solar which is, uh, is expected to be cheaper. It's not as efficient, but it's a lot cheaper to produce. Combined with uh, plug-in electric hybrid cars will allow us to have a fair degree of mobility. But it's not going to be like it is right now, where yeah. we can hop in a, a gas-guzzling vehicle and drive you know, 40 miles to a job, and we can live way out in the suburbs
0: it's not going to be like that anymore. Yeah. is well, Can- home to the Australian National University, which is world leader in some of these solar technologies. This is a podcast of the Fuzzy Logic Science Show from Radio Two X in Canberra, and you're listening to Robert Rapier being interviewed by Rod Taylor. But solar, of course, is a, an energy producer. It's not easily an energy carrier, and conversely, hydrogen is an air energy carrier, but not an energy producer, so... Now that's going to help us with the energy side of the equation, but what about the other uses for oil, so the fertilisers and the plastics and so on that you mentioned?
1: You know, there are alternatives for, uh, for most everything. Uh, the most difficult may be jet fuel, and I've actually had some conversations with the World Bank on this. Uh, they're quite concerned about, about uh, jet fuel supplies as oil peaks. Uh, but even then, there are some options there for, for making jet fuel out of a, uh, out of, uh, from, from a bio base. You know, we make aspirin right now out of oil. Oh, we made it before, and, and it didn't come from oil. And we make things like uh, butanol, which is uh, a very good paint solvent, and it's also a fuel in its own right. We make that out of oil now, but it used to be made biologically. You know, there are alternative ways to make a lot of these things. They just aren't cheap. So, again, it's going to be, we're going to have to do with less because things are going to cost a lot more, I think.
0: Where, where do you see hydrogen into this equation?
1: Well, the, we, I don't believe we'll ever have a hydrogen economy. Um, but there are some applications that uh, I could see hydrogen fitting into. What? Let's say you have a, 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 an area, a, a neighborhood... And you've got solar panels on all of the houses and, and there's enough solar there to actually uh, run the electricity demands and uh, their peak electricity demands and that's usually going to happen the, the the demand the solar panel sizing is going to be determined by you know say, say late in the afternoon when the sun is is getting low and you're not getting nearly as much out of the uh, out of the panels and you're still demanding electricity when the sun is directly overhead you may be producing more than you actually need, and if you're producing more than you need, there are some options for. Uh, there's a potential to have, say, a, a fuel cell uh, serving a neighborhood, and you could potentially, you know, it's not efficient to electrolyze water into hydrogen, but if you had extra electricity, if you had excess electricity, you could do that, and you could store that hydrogen and then use it at night for uh, for electricity generation. I can see that as an application for, for uh, hydrogen. I don't think we'll all ever we will ever be driving around hydrogen fuel vehicles or hi, you know hydrogen fuel cells. I, I don't think that will ever be practical for uh, for, for transportation for the average person.
0: Uh, so if they're not fuel cell hydrogen vehicles, what what are the electric vehicles? Are they just battery vehicles?
1: Yes. Yes. Lithium lithium batteries. Um, there's there's some that are some others I think that are being experimented with. But uh, you know, I, I just saw a program tonight. Uh, you may be aware that uh, General Motors is is coming out with a Chevy Volt, and that's a purely electric vehicle. And I think it's going to be out in 2010. There are, of course, we've got hybrids now. Uh, a lot of different companies make hybrids, but uh, several are coming out with uh, plug-in hybrids that are just—they're they're essentially electric vehicles with the gasoline motor if you get uh, beyond the range of uh, of, the, of the batteries. And that's the, you know, that's the biggest problem right now. Back, you know, back to solar and why, and you mentioned that it's not a very good, uh, it, you know, it's you can very efficiently use solar panels to convert solar into electricity, you know, 10, 20 times more efficiently than biomass, but biomass has a built-in storage system and solar doesn't. So, uh you know some people ask me sometimes what is the most critical problem to solve in all this and all this alternative energy and I always say storage the the storage of electricity from uh from wind, solar geothermal all these things if you could solve the storage problem and, and of course, there are solutions they're just not they're not really good solutions,
0: but yeah. it would be
1: such an enabling technology if you had a really efficient storage mechanism so that you can use solar then at night to, uh, to recharge your electric vehicles
0: Well, not for vehicles but for a ground station uh, solar power station, there's been a leading Australian researcher who's just gone over to the US and they actually have a solution using pressure vessels or something, I'm not sure the detail of that, but also on the fuel cell technology, did you hear recently that some researchers have discovered a way of using Gore-Tex to replace platinum in the fuel cells?
1: I, I did. I actually wrote a short blog article on that. As uh, you know, you're you're never going to believe this. That's uh, oh, that maybe was a, it was
0: you. Maybe that's where I got it from. Maybe it was from uh, your maybe blog.
1: maybe so. Maybe so. I, I picked that up, and uh, is a it was a very unusual. You know, that's it's not the sort of thing you expect to read. That they're uh, they, they they made a breakthrough with Cortex on uh, on the energy front. But uh, yeah, that was that was very interesting. Of course, you know, solar thermal. Um, it solar thermal can melt salts, and those salts will stay molten and then will give up their heat at night. So there is a, there is a storage mechanism for, uh, for solar thermal, which uh, you know, is just concentrating the, uh, the solar rays into, into heat, basically, as opposed to the photovoltaic, which is, which is converting the photons into electricity.
0: Yeah. Now, let's get back to biofuels a bit, because your blog talks a lot about biofuels. Can you tell us about some of the most promising ones there?
1: You know, there a lot of people are doing some pretty interesting stuff, and uh, one of the companies that I talk about sometimes is a company in the U.S. called LS9, and what they're trying to do is uh, I'd say it's the holy grail of of biofuels. They're trying to take things like you know garbage, uh, you know biomass, and use uh, use microbes to convert that into oil. And the reason that's a holy grail is that uh, oil floats on water, and most of these biofuels don't. And that requires a very, very energy-intensive process. I've joked before that the ideal uh, biofuel would come from a microbe that can eat garbage, excrete diesel or fuel, and can't live outside the lab. And that's sort of what what they're shooting for. And it's not so far-fetched when you think about it. Our bodies produce fats, and they produce fatty acids, and they produce things that, if you look at the chemical structure, are not that far removed from, from hydrocarbons, from, from uh, you know, oil. And it's not too hard to imagine that you could tweak the metabolism a little bit and uh, do a little bit of genetic engineering and actually produce microbes that can make oil. And they have done this in the lab, as a matter of fact. You know, they're doing this. Um, some other things that I think are promising in the longer term. I think gasification processes uh, will be. I think they have staying power in the long term. Right now, they're too expensive to really be commercially viable.
0: Well, what what is gasification?
1: Gasification is. Uh, you know, in the U.S., we they our politicians have co-opted the definition of gasification. We have we have cellulose ethanol, which takes the cellulose and we hydrolyze the cellulose to sugars and we convert that into ethanol and we have gasification which takes biomass which doesn't just contain cellulose you know biomass has cellulose hemicellulose it has lignin it has proteins it has all kinds of things in it that cellulosic cellulosic process and these cellulosic processes have been around for 40 years but these cellulosic processes can't touch all of those. They're only getting to the cellulose. Gasification is the burning of biomass in an oxygen-starved uh, environment, and it makes synthesis gas. And synthesis gas is carbon monoxide and hydrogen, and once you have carbon monoxide and hydrogen, you can make any number of, of chemicals, including diesel, from the fischer tropsch reaction. The fischer tropsch reaction is what the Germans used in World War II to make their fuel. They were using the fischer tropsch reaction combined with coal gasification to, to do that. But uh, you can do the same thing with biomass. It's just that biomass is more difficult to handle. The energy density is not very high, and it can make a lot of tars and a lot of undesirable things if it's not, if it's not handled correctly. But there are a lot of companies that are, that are working on this problem, on the biomass gasification. Uh, Coram is one of them, C-O-H-R-E-N, um, they've got a plant in Germany. I've been over there and toured that plant, and they're probably ahead of everybody when it comes to biomass gasification to, to diesel.
0: Yeah, now I was reading recently about the previous oil energy crisis, which actually was whale oil, and it's very interesting to hear what happens as a supply runs out and people go to greater and greater extremes to get the oil or substitutes and right now i guess we'll be or not too far away we'll be looking at things like shale oil do you think that's going to happen
1: um you know I've, it's a funny thing I, I saw a newspaper headline that said uh, you know shale oil is just around the corner for being technically viable it's it's almost there and that newspaper headline was from 1906 <laughs> so Shale oil, the the problem with shale oil, and it is absolutely true that in the United States we have maybe a trillion barrels worth of shale oil. The problem is it's, it's oil that didn't get cooked all the way. And so to finish it, you've got to cook it. And right now it's not technically viable to cook it without using more than a barrel's worth of oil to get a barrel's worth of shale out. And so, if you've got a trillion barrels of shale oil, and it's going to cost you a trillion and a half barrels worth of energy to get it out, it's it might as well be on the moon. You're not going to you're not going to get it.
0: It now, sounds like quite dirty, isn't it?
1: It is. It's very dirty. It's a very dirty process. Um, it's you know similar to the tar sands, the oil sands that are in Canada, which that is commercially viable. We we are doing that, but in the process of doing that, there are a lot of environmental issues we're you know we're putting uh putting these tailings in these ponds up there you've got ducks coming in and flying in and landing in these ponds and getting covered with oil and um the, the problem i have is we just haven't solved the the uh environmental issues with the tar sands that hasn't stopped us from uh from scaling up and and the tar sands i think have a good enough energy return i think it's in the 6 to 6 to 1 8 to 1 ratio compared to about 15 to 20 to 1 for conventional oil, so you know it's not as it's not as easy. It's, it is more energy intensive than conventional oil, but not so bad as some of the biofuels like corn ethanol, which is uh, almost one to one. It's maybe a little bit better. Um, the, the USDA has done studies here in the U.S. that showed that uh, maybe you get if you count the the weight the byproducts, you get maybe 1.3 BTUs back for a BTU of input. Now that's that's pretty bad when you're comparing that to something like oil or even something like tar sands.
0: Mm. Now what about uh, methane under the deep sea reserves? Have you heard of that?
1: Uh, are you talking about methane hydrates?: Yeah yeah, the methane hydrates. The, uh, there's a lot of, a lot of people or a lot of companies in a lot of countries are working on processes to uh, to commercialize that. Japan, I think, is a world leader in, in trying to figure out how to turn those methane hydrates. What a methane hydrate is, methane, um, it's a methane complex with water, and it's like, it's like ice, and it burns. Um, but the problem is it's laying all over the ocean floor. So the question is, how do you get that out and convert that into methane you know, in, a, in a commercially viable manner? The other problem is you know, methane is such a powerful greenhouse gas, how do you do that without, you know, leaking a lot of methane in the atmosphere? And I think those problems haven't been solved. But I, I've seen just unbelievable estimates of uh, of the reserves for methane hydrates, like uh, you know, tens of trillions of barrels worth of methane hydrates in on the ocean floor.
0: Yeah. When you say they're lying on the ocean floor, do you mean literally, or how would you get them out? Does it mean uh, scraping the sea floor and and destroying the local ecosystem, or is it drilling or or pumping or what? Yeah, I I
1: I don't know how people have uh, have gone and extracted those, but um, I th- I think that's it. I think basically you're you're mining the ocean floor,
0: open, like and an a, open cut mine.
1: I, I I don't know exactly how they do it. I, I um, but uh, I I do know they have to go they have to go down. I mean if you could process it in situ, if you could process it in place and produce methane, uh but even then, you know, the methane is spread out, these things are it's scattered out. But then think about burning all of that carbon. I mean you not only you you've got the potential to leak some of that methane in the atmosphere, but now your 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 greenhouse gas emissions are, are just going to continue rising as far as as far as you can see. Mm-hmm. So uh, I I hope I hope that we come up with a better solution than, than uh burning our methane hydrates
0: yeah now robert something else that's appearing in the news a lot is carbon geo sequestration do you know anything about that
1: uh a little bit i mean there's um there's there's no real commercially viable way to do it um i often tell people that i think my company has got the first commercially viable method of of sequestering carbon and we're not doing it geothermally we're doing it you know above ground um we're 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 taking carbon out of the atmosphere and stashing away in an application. Now, geothermal sequestration would be like taking emissions off of a coal power plant and putting them back underground, or or using them somehow to to tie up that carbon. Um, You know, there's there's schemes where they bubble it through uh, through algae and and create, uh, and and the algae absorb all that all that carbon. Uh, But then the algae are usually burned, and so the carbon ends up in the atmosphere anyway. So, I mean, you could, you you could technically you could take and you could sequester the emissions off a coal-fired power plant, but I've read that the estimates are that it would take about half of the power output to do it, and so it's not commercially viable unless the government steps forward and says, and, and mandates it and says, uh, regardless of the cost, you're going to have to put these carbon emissions back in the ground. And the problem is, China's not going to do that. India's not going to do that and we've got all these vehicles running around all over the world with no easy way to sequester those emissions
0: mm, and politically it's very strong in australia because as you probably know we are a big time coal exporter and our economy rides on those exports to a very large extent now if you had some or had the ability to pull some political levers what would you do to see a way out of this mess
1: i've i've written a lot of articles on the on the politics of this and it's it's Almost futile in the U.S. Um, I think the thing that we really, really need to do in the U.S. is uh, raise the price of, of fuels. I mean, the reason we use so much fuel uh, is because it's cheap, and it's, I don't think it's a coincidence that uh, Europeans pay double what we do for fuel, and they use half as much. So, you know, in, in preparation for peak oil, we're going to have to power down. We're going to have to start start using less. We're going to have to start living within our means a little bit more. The only thing that's ever caused us to do that is is price. You know, price talks. In the U.S. here, when, when gasoline prices and, and oil prices spiked up so much, people started to buy more fuel-efficient vehicles. Mass transit ridership hit record levels here in the U.S. So that's telling you people respond to price. Now, a lot of people say, well, that's a regressive tax and it'll hit the poor the hardest. There are ways to do this. I mean, you could rebate uh, income taxes. You could make this revenue neutral such that, you know, I'm going to make your, your carbon consumption more expensive, but I'm going to rebate you over here on your income. Now, that gives you an incentive then to cut back on your carbon. So uh, I, I think there's no doubt that it would cause us to, to roll back some of our, some of our uh, carbon consumption, some of our fossil fuel consumption, if we don't do it, the market's going to do it for us sooner or later, and it would allow us some time to plan. Um, I, I just I don't see us doing it because it's uh, it's political political suicide, is what people say. Uh, it would take very strong political leadership here in the U.S. To, to do something like that, and we tend not to act until you know we've got an emergency.
0: Yeah, well, and, I don't think the U.S. is unique in that regard. I think any the democratic liberal countries around the world suffer the same problem that the political process doesn 't work very well for long term problems such as this one
1: yeah, I think though that Europe has been more forward thinking on the uh, on the, on their carbon emissions. I often use them as a model you know they still use a lot relative to you know third world countries, but they use uh, you know about half what the u s uses they've got better mass transit they've got small, they use smaller vehicles, and they don't have their their they don't have suburbs that are spread out for miles and miles. They don't have, you know, something like Houston where people will will live 40 miles away and, and drive in and, and drive out in a in a four-wheel drive vehicle that gets 12 miles to the gallon. And we do that because we can afford to because it's cheap. And if we made it not cheap, people would stop doing that and we cut down on our consumption.
0: Yeah, I don't. I think it's hard to or easy to overlook the inverted commas, momentum behind the structure of society, cultural attitudes, the layout of our cities, the design of mass transport and so on, that uh, makes it very hard to change these things in the short and even the medium term. Now, Robert, are you optimistic about the future of all of this or where do you think we're going to be in, say, 10 or 20 years?
1: I am optimistic, but I'm, I'm also realistic. I think we're going to go through some very tough times. And you know when, when oil prices spiked up so much, in the U.S., you know, people who don't make a lot of money were having a tough time paying their mortgages, and they were having a tough time affording fuel. I see that happening more and more going forward, and, and it affecting more and more people. I, I tell my friends and family, you know, expect to pay two or three times what you're paying now for, for uh, fuel. You know, expect that, and if you expect that and you cut your consumption back, then uh, you're going to be you're going to be better off when when if and when that does happen. But you know wh- what do I think is going to happen? I-, I think price is going it- to it's going to be very painful for people. But it, we are going to cut our consumption back. It's going to be hard on the airline industry. It's going to be hard on the on the automobile automobile industry even as it is now, as oil prices spiked up so much. But I think we'll I think we'll muddle our way through. We'll just have to especially, you know, there'll there'll be a period of pain, I think. There'll be a very difficult period that we'll have to go through. And, you know, I don't have to point out there are people that think that that's absolutely not the case, that we're headed for a a very serious crash after, after oil production peaks. They'll point out that, you know, world population rose along with oil consumption, and the only way that the world is sustaining, you know, six Plus billion people is because of the oil we use. And once we can't use that much oil, the, the world can't sustain that population. I, I, I understand that argument. I understand I understand why they think what they do. I guess I'm just hopeful. I guess I just don't want to believe that it could, uh, you know, that, that it could come to that.
0: Yes, it's pretty scary to think of some of the scenarios that are, that are actually possible. What would you do as an individual? What would you recommend? Uh,
1: I would, you know, Again, I would think about you know what what would you do if you could only get half as much fuel? You know, in the U.S. we had gasoline shortages recently because of the hurricanes that came through, and people came face to face with just how dependent they are on going to the corner station and, and filling up. Um, what what? How can you can you structure your life in such a way? You know, can you can you ride a bike to the store? Can you get a more fuel-efficient vehicle? Can you use mass transit? Um, I've managed to not get a car since, uh, since I left Scotland, which was uh, March 1st. I still haven't bought a car yet, and it's been difficult at times. I'm, I'm, trying, to, I'm trying to last as long as I can. Um, I, I have to take cabs. I have to take uh, you know, public transit. In the Netherlands, it is much easier than it is here in Dallas because Dallas was not built for, uh, uh, for somebody without a car. But, you know, I get to the Netherlands, it's a completely different story because trains can take me everywhere and then there's the good bus systems and then I've got bicycles. But uh, I, I would counsel individuals to, you know, take their own, you know, energy future into their hands and, and do some planning here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't think I'm going to have to grow my own food, but I do. Um, I You know, I try to teach my kids those, uh, those skills, those sorts of skills. Um, you know, that's a maybe an extreme doomer viewpoint that, uh, you know, we, we get to the point where, you know, the food's not showing up at the grocery stores anymore and people are starving and we're having to grow our own food. I grew up on a farm and I, I, like, to, uh, I like to grow things, so I, I, I do grow my own food, but I also know that it's, it's possible that I may have to grow my own food at some point. So, I mean, I think, I think gardening is a good skill to have, but, uh, you know, the main thing is, uh, you know, minimize your fossil fuel consumption and you will be, you know, your pocketbook will be better off, and you will probably be better prepared for uh, for when the, the when nature reduces your fossil fuel consumption for you. Uh,
0: right now you make me feel very guilty for not cycling in. Normally I do ride into the studio. I should just put a raincoat on and, <laughs> and put up with the rain. It,
1: it's, it's difficult, and that's why people don't do it. It is, it is not easy. You know, it's much easier to hop in our car and go down, you know, and get and get very, very dependent on uh, on on you know transportation. You know, individual transportation.
0: I'm Rod Taylor, and I've been interviewing Robert Rapier for the Fuzzy Logic Science Show on Radio Two Double X in Canberra. This interview is available from Fuzzy Logic on Two Double X dot dot com.